Welcome back to the NBA Recap Show. As always, it's been a fantastic week of basketball. We're recording this on the afternoon of uh, Monday the 15th, so it's just after that Jason Tatum explosion might be a fair way to put that. 51 points in Game 7. With me today, I've only got two of the guys. I've got Yuri Bilsic. You might have heard him on 91.3 Sport FM or the DRN, DRN1 Sports Rap in Perth. Here's our mini basketball encyclopedia. As always, Yuri, how are you? Alex, afternoon to you and great to be back on and plenty to discuss. Did I call you jury again? I've got to stop doing that. I'm an no, uncultured man. No, <laughs> okay. no, you got it right. And last but not least, Mr. Tom Dev. You may have read him on the raw.com, but he's with us today. Tom, how are you? I am great and I've been waiting for this podcast all day since about 5.30 this morning and I'm raring to go. Not much of a Celtics man, are you? <laughs> oh, I watch them every now and again when they're on TV, you know. Yeah, and as always, I'm the host for today. I'm Alexander J from the Five Minute Podcast, People Bites. But we're going to need much more than five minutes to talk about the last week in the NBA and looking forward to our conference finals. Since the last time we talked, gentlemen, we've lost the Phoenix Suns, we've lost the Philadelphia 76ers, we've lost the New York Knicks, and there's somebody else I'm forgetting at this point in time. The Golden State Warriors, the defending champions. How the hell could I forget? We have lost a lot of quality basketball teams to some fantastic basketball. And in the case of the Suns, maybe a bit of a collapse. Um, Lots and lots of news coming out this week. Again, it's always great to be a basketball fan this type of year. And it feels like it gets better every year. There's a lot I want to cover on and there's some emerging news stories. So maybe I might just start with you, Tom. What is the one news story that's come out this week that you want to get at the top of the show and go, hey, this is super big, super important? So I was walking the dogs on uh, Sunday, I think it was Mother's Day, and all of a sudden my phone started buzzing like crazy. And it was Twitter. I'm going, oh, no, what's going on here? And it was the Suns firing Monty Williams, which I did not expect at all. Um, He won Coach of the Year twice with this Suns team. (laughs) He's the winningest coach in the last three years with a record of 160-76, and and he's just been fired. I mean, I don't think any coach is safe from getting fired. Um, and look, you can't fire all the players for underperforming. But you should. You should. You really should, especially with the Suns roster. But, I mean, how much of the blame can you really put on him? I mean, the injuries to Chris Paul and Aiden in that series against the Nuggets, not really his fault. Might be able to put a bit of blame on his relationship deteriorating with Aiden. That, that really, for, as a coach, shouldn't happen. Um, but he got that whole new roster in the middle of the season. Like, how much he had to say in that Durant trade. The rumours are it was the new owner, Matt Ishbia, came in and demanded that they make that trade. Um, And so to sort of make a roster change that big and lose all your depth and then have to adjust mid-season, while Durant only played eight regular season games, is pretty hard to do as a coach. Um, He did have a lack of adjustments in those series and poor rotations in those first two rounds that did sort of uh, hurt his reputation. Um, On the flip side of things, it, it could be... Uh, sort of like what Toronto did when they fired Dwayne Casey and Mm. everyone sort of raised questions and Nick Nurse ended up being the right man for the job and won them that championship. And maybe, you know, obviously they didn't uh, get Kawhi mid-season, but Durant, Kawhi, you can kind of compare those two. So maybe, but, you know, where to now for the Suns? I don't know who they would bring in, but Nick Nurse potentially. Um, But, yeah, that, like, you know, and trading Aiton looks like it's going to be a possibility. Chris Paul reportedly up for grabs. I personally wouldn't trade Aiton just yet because I think his value is at an all-time low. Uh, I think they should hold out like what the Philly did with Ben Simmons and just wait for that next superstar to demand a trade because it's always going to be a next one. But 
yeah, that, that's my thoughts on this Sun situation. He might be a bit of a symptom of two things. Is that new owner symptom that Matt Ishbeer is just uh, brought into the team this year? Or is, I mean, Monty Williams isn't his guy and they're well-known new owners fawning their guys in the front office. And also there's a, a bit of inflexibility with that roster as well. It might be a symptom of, hey, can't get rid of DA, can't get rid of Chris Paul, we've got to do something. And the coach is maybe the easiest thing to change. So a bit unlucky for Monty Williams. Yuri, uh, what's the one news story that sticks out for you this week? There's a few coach things happening. Is it another coach story? Yes, there's another one circulating early this morning, Alex, and it's about Mark Jackson. He's set to interview for the Milwaukee Bucks head coaching job, of course, after Mark Budenholzer Budenholzer was fired back on May 5th after the Bucks' first round collapsed to the eight-seed Miami Heat. And last time Mark Jackson did coach was back in 2014 with the Golden State Warriors, where he had such an integral part in the development of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, the Splash Brothers, of course, and getting them to the playoffs in 2013. It was the first time in six years back then that Golden State had made the postseason. And, of course, what happened that postseason? They upset the Denver Nuggets in six games, that wild, crazy game six. I think where Golden State had about four turnovers inside the last two minutes and almost collapsed in a heap and somehow managed to get through. And they really gave the Spurs a run for their money that postseason as well, ultimately falling in six games too. So Mark Jackson, I think by memory, his winning record is 52% in his coaching career, which is, you know, it's fairly good for, you know, a coaching career thus far. You know, he's only had, you know, had one coaching gig with the Golden State Warriors from, basically 2011 all the way through to his firing at the end of the 2013-14 season when they lost to the Clippers in seven games in that first round. The interesting part, I think, Alex, will be is that he was very good at, of course, developing Curry and Thompson, them being very young players at that time, Curry being 25, Thompson being 23. This Bucks team is far different. It's a veteran-laden roster with Giannis turning 29 on de- December 6th. So later on this year, Chris Middleton, we don't know what's going to happen with him because he has a player option. Drew Holiday's 33 now as well, I think, next month on June 12th. Brooke Lopez is 35. Bobby Portis is 28. So in terms of how that would work, that still remains to be seen. But he's very flexible in terms of strategizing different ploys. And I think that will suit what the Bucks are looking for too because – we spoke about Mike Budenholzer, right, Alex? And at times he became very, you could say the word stubborn in terms of his offensive schemes and defensive schemes where he wouldn't change particular matchups, especially the one with Drew Holiday and Jimmy Butler. And Giannis had such great success guarding Jimmy back in the 2021 playoffs. I think Mark would have more of a flexibility in that way. He was a point guard too, so he'd be out to see the whole side of the floor, not just defensively, but offensively too, and be able to orchestrate a game plan where it will shut down an opposition's best player or an opposition's offensive scheme alone if he was to get the coaching job. But however, though, Alex, there's so many really good candidates out there. Nick Nurse, of course, Monty Monty Williams' name is now up there too. Doc Rivers might become available depending if you think he's a good coach or not. Well, he says he wants to stay in the 76ers next season. He's still got two more years to run, right, Alex, on that five-year $40 million deal, which is signed back in on October 1st, 2020. So I guess we'll see what happens from here on in. But that was something I came looking, well, came about early this afternoon that Mark Jackson's name has popped up for the Milwaukee Bucks coaching job. 
Yeah, the biggest indictment on him is uh, he left Golden State as a very good team and they won the title immediately the next year with a new coach. Uh, Tom, more news stories. Anything else you want to touch on? Because I've got heaps I can ramble on, but I'll pick leave one to you. Go ahead. Well, I think the big story from this morning is going to be the future of Philly. Uh, as a Celtics fan, I was in a pretty dark place after Game 5 and I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think we were going to pull that one out. And uh, I thought, wow, Philly is actually going to make the conference finals for the first time since 2001. And after on this podcast... Maybe five weeks ago, I made the declaration that Philly were no threat. I was, uh, my hot take was was going up in flames. But for them to absolutely get smacked in uh, Game Seven today, but not only that, but to have what happened in Game Six, where they had that game, all the momentum pretty much until Tatum just decided to remember how to shoot a basketball, um, was just ridiculous. And where they go now, I mean, this is another playoff failure for Embiid. You can point the fingers at all his other teammates, but. He's the constant guy there, and it keeps happening to him. Uh, you know, sure, Simmons didn't show up when he needed to, but Embiid was also there. Um, he's had players like Jimmy Butler, and then this year, James Harden. I mean, Harden didn't show up today either, but where they go now, I mean, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think their future could look like. Oh, it's really interesting for Philly because I've wanted them to be great for a few years. Joel Embiid's been at, like the forefront of my preseason MVP bets for five years. Um, and every time you think, okay, they're starting to show something, they're starting to show something. And they keep having these heartbreaking losses in in the playoffs. So, like, if you throw your mind back to um, 2019, they lose in the conference semifinals against that quite quadruple buzzer beater. That was great for me at the time, a Toronto Raptors fan. Two years later, they have the Ben Simmons passes up on an open dunk and they lose to the Hawks in the conference semifinals. And again today, the Game 7 loss. I'm not sure what they do. I think if you gave me an over-under of one and a half people between Doc Rivers, Joel Embiid and James Harden being there next year, that's really hard. I think there's probably a good chance they move a lot of them, but it doesn't fix the root cause of these issues. Like Tobias Harris has been nothing for them all year. They haven't unleashed Tyrese Maxey in the right way. They're not getting enough bench production. And Joel Embiid hasn't been allowed to thrive which is really difficult to say because he got his MVP this year and he's looked dominant. But is it coaching or not being forceful enough to throw him back into the post where he has been dominant? Because he's got the silky smooth jumper as a seven-footer that when it falls, it's the best thing in basketball. But it's not falling. Today, it didn't fall. Well, I mean, in the last like four and a half minutes of game six, Tatum took that game by the neck and just willed his way through, whereas Embiid didn't even touch the ball. And it, it keeps happening to him. And... If that's coaching or if that's just him not demanding the ball, it could go either way. But the reality is he's your MVP. It could also be injured. Like he did have that LCL sprain that it was two to six weeks. He's playing three and a half, four weeks in at the moment. So the injury could be a factor why he doesn't want to go into the post and bang. Um, There was a really interesting stat that the broadcast team brought up earlier in game six. And I haven't independently verified this because I couldn't find out. But apparently the Sixers haven't beat the Celtics in the playoffs since 1982. I don't know if that's legit or not, but it sounds legit and it sounds like a curse. I'm going to go out there and say Philly's got a curse. <laughs> oh, uh, Jason Tatum is that boy too. He was just incredible. I was going to say we'll move on to some positive news, but the Suns, <laughs> the next thing I'm going to talk about is the Suns choking for the second year in a row. Um, I don't know who watched this game because I certainly watched the first half of um, Game 7. Yuri's throwing his hand up. But, uh, yeah, the second year in a row, they're blown out by 30 at halftime in an elimination game. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because there's so much to get to you, but how did you find this one for the Suns? They just got absolutely carved to ribbons, Alex. I I was lucky enough to watch the replay of it on KO because I had work early in the morning. But to see what Phoenix did 
offensively orchestrating with Contavious Caldwell Pope absolutely getting hot in the first quarter. I'm pretty sure he had 12 of his 21 points. 17. In that opening period. 17, 17, rather. Yeah. 17 of his 21 points in that opening period. And it was the, it was just though he just couldn't miss because it was Nikola Jokic who was the one who was facilitating all his open looks. And there was one particular play, play where he set sort of not a full screen, but it was a, a slight brush screen which set up enough space for KCP to open up and, you know, let it fly from deep and which he hit, of course, because he's such an exceptional three-point shooter. And there was another brilliant play which Jokic had with Murray. The two have connected so many times during the series. And there was one behind the back which Murray had to Jokic for the easiest of layups. And there was just far too many plays where Phoenix completely broke down. And of course, the minutes were going to get to Devin Book and Kevin Durant in the end, Alex. Kevin Durant averaged 44 minutes in that series alone against the Clippers. This series, he averaged 41, point, 41 minutes exact. And Devin Booker averaged 40.7, if I'm not mistaken. And yet again, It's a lot when you're playing every other yes, day. Yeah. A lot, especially without Chris Paul after game two, after straining his groin, and DeAndre Ayton for game six, it just made it all the much more difficult for Phoenix to generate any offense. And especially when you lose the offensive rating by about, was it 10, 10 points? I'm pretty sure it's a differential. I was just adding it to my notes. And that is a far, far discrepancy. And to see the bench as well, apart from like the brilliant game four from Landry Sham as well, that 19 points, the five threes, including I think about four threes in that final term. And they're all from the same left-hand baseline in the final period, which propelled Phoenix over the line. They couldn't get anything going from this, from their bench production, of course, with Terrence Ross. And Jock Landau gave them some very handy minutes as well, especially game six, trying to physically defend Jokic. But he was no match for him. And every time where Phoenix didn't want to switch when Jokic was seeing the screen, because, right, he was going to have a smaller player on him. And you know what happens in that situation. He completely bullies his smaller defender on the block. And Aiton found the same problem yet again. He was absolutely monstered from, from pillar to post down in the low like we've block. been so negative to start this podcast. It's oh. Teams getting destroyed, people getting fired. I have some positive news. Maybe if you're a Timberwolves fan, I don't know if either of you guys saw this today, but Anthony Edwards came out and said he was going to go to France over the offseason to work with Rudy Gobert on their connection. He did say that Rudy Gobert was going to have to pay for everything, the fights, the accommodation. <laughs> but that's positive news if you're a Timberwolves fan because those two had some friction this season. I'll have a look at my list and see some other positive news. We had the Lonnie Walker game this week, 15, all 15 of his points in that um, game four explosion. The dunk of the year got awarded to Aaron Gordon in that overtime explosion on Landry Shamit. Um, I feel like I should probably link that in our show notes because that was one of the nastiest dunks I've ever seen in my life. Um, the all-defense, all-rookie, all-NBA teams came out this week. I don't think there was any real surprises unless one of you threatened. Nah, no real surprises no. except Jalen Brown making the all-NBA team. Now you've got to pay him that Superman. Max, Tom's maybe not the happiest about that. He's happy. I can't tell. He's happy. He, he's not. He's happy. Uh, and Jarmarant got suspended. So, look, a lot happening. Last thing on my list, Miami's coach, Eric Spolstra, becomes third on the list for most wins with a single team. He passed his own boss, Pat Riley, who uh, had that reputation with the New York Knicks, and he passed it at 103. So, uh, Coach Spo, never won Coach of the Year, sneaky, rising up those ranks. Guys, we might throw to performance of the week because, again, there's so much news going on, but there's so many great performances. And, Tom, I have a suspicion on what performance you're going to pick for the week. Go ahead. 
Yeah, so it's uh, Jason Tatum's game seven today. Oh, shock. 51 points, 13 rebounds, five assists, uh, and gave me every single reason to be glad I got up at 5.30 this morning, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, most points ever in a game seven. That Steph Curry record lasted two weeks, which <laughs> I, I didn't expect to be broken that quickly. Uh, first ever 50-plus point, uh, point playoff game without any turnovers, which in itself is impressive. But also, this is the same player at Tatum who set the record for most turnovers in a single postseason last year. So the fact that he was able to clean that up. And also, this was game seven. You would have thought the Sixers could have at least worked out ways to sort of stop him. Um, he was six from 10 from three. Uh, Jason Tatum is now tied fourth most 50-plus point um, games in NBA playoff history, which is just insane at 25. Um and, you know, for me, in my opinion, who I've probably watched about 85% of Tatum's career games, I think this is his second best game ever. I still think game six against the Bucks last year in the playoffs was probably better because he, he saved the season, had yeah. 46 points, and he outdueled Giannis, who had 44 and 20 rebounds. But his game today was just insane. And it's hard to believe with six minutes on the clock in game six in the fourth quarter when Tatum had, I think, seven points. It was looking like the blame game was going to be pointed at him. And You're understating him by saying it was seven points. He was one for 15, Tom. <laughs> I was watching that game going, maybe you don't get rid of Jalen Brown this offseason. Maybe it's Tatum you take a look at. But continue. Yeah, well, it's, it's crazy to look at that. You're thinking Tatum's going to be under fire. The whole team, might like there might be some changes. And, you know, just flick of a switch, Tatum hit just a bunch of threes, which was just huge. They win that game. They come back in seven and he, he does this and scores 51. And, you know, this might be that might be the the point that we look at in in a month's time and go. That was where the Celtics finally flicked that switch, and that might have led to a championship. But we'll see. Yuri, go ahead. It was crazy seeing Game Six, right, and watching that game on Friday, and he missed his first eleven shots, and then it was basically the final four fourteen of Game Six where he scored twelve of his nineteen points. Of course, he had sixteen of his nineteen in the final turn, but all twelve of those points were from three-point land, that crazy three over Embiid as well. He had that other three to close it out and basically send the Philly fans out of their seats. I think the other part as well, we'll probably get to this sooner than later as well about the series, but inserting Rob Williams back into the starting lineup, that made such a major difference. And there was a great video by one of the basketball channels as well on YouTube, Thinking Basketball, about how... Boston managed to contain the Embiid, the Harden Embiid pick and roll mm. because of Rob Williams's presence in the paint. That was absolutely major, and it sort of left Philly to really scramble in terms of their offensive possessions with the shot clock going down. So that was a major difference to why not only in Game Six as well in those final six minutes alone, but also today in Game Seven because Rob Williams's presence was everywhere, altering shots and Embiid as we spoke about earlier, just couldn't get into the offensive flow in the fourth quarter where they should have utilized him a lot more. Mm. Uh, Yuri, your performance of the week, you've got a lot to choose from. Uh, who have you got? Well, I actually put this down. I was going to look at more of the series hole of Nikola Jokic's triple-double, Alex. This is, <laughs> my goodness, it is absolutely phenomenal what he's doing and the amount of disrespect he gets, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want to land in hot water. What is it about Nikola Jokic that some pundits don't like or can't respect him enough? Can I throw that question to you? Oh, that's a tough one. Tom, go ahead. You look like you're ready. I, 
I just think he's a victim of his own success. And I think right. I think Giannis is sort of in the same uh, sort of picture here where it's like you look at the stats and it's like, oh, for the last month they've averaged 30 and 15 and like nine and you're like, oh, no one's talked about it. It's because it's just, it's it's whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you look at Jokic's stats, he's, he's labeled a playoff choker, but his stats are insane. It's it's crazy. And you, know, you, you go to the flip side of Embiid, Embiid, didn't really carry that much weight in his MVP debate this year. Whereas in the previous seasons, it was Jokic. Oh, what's he done in the playoffs? Well, Jokic is performing and he could lead them to a final now with the way he's going. The knock on him in the playoffs is probably unfair. I mean, he loses in 2020 in five, but to the Lakers who win the championship in the bubble and then loses Jamal Murray uh, to a torn ACL in the 2021 playoffs. I can't off the top of my head remember what happened last year. Uh, But also... It It was the Warriors in five. Well, there you go. The Warriors, again, the, the champions. So he's probably unlucky in the uh, in the playoff sense, but also he has been listed as that little bit of a liability. I've been guilty of it at the end of the season where he was targeted by teams like the Raptors that went directly at him, found a lot of success, and Denver had that slide. You look back on it and go, maybe he's just conserving his energy for the playoffs, which is a valid tactic, but that's probably the biggest knock on him, Yuri. Um, but it's a really great point. I remember Tom asked a few weeks ago on the podcast, have we just forgotten about Denver as the, the championship favorites? Because they're on a roll. And I'll, we'll get to that in our next segment about who we think is the best team remaining. Um, but yeah, you're not wrong, Yuri. Nikola Jokic this week, just unreal. There's a lot of other performances a week. I'm going to list off a couple I've got. Uh, and Tom and Yuri, I want you to pick one more that you uh, is your favorite out of these. So we had uh, Steph Curry's 31-point triple-double in game four. That was the Lonnie Walker game. So it doesn't get a, a lot for that one. Jalen Brunson in back-to-back elimination games. Game five, he had 38 points in 48 minutes. Game six, he had 41 points in game six. Yuri, you want to talk? Yes, I was watching this game, Alex, and it's incredible what he's done for the Knicks this season, right? Alex signed a four-year, $110 million deal. We've spoken about this countless countless times on this show where the Mavericks offered him, what was a four-year, $55 million deal? Are you smoking pot? Seriously? For For that to happen and let him go? It just doesn't make sense. And for him to back up why he did four 30-point games this series, the first New York Knick since Bernard King back in 1984, that first-round series, I'm pretty sure, against the Detroit Pistons in five games, the legendary Bernard King, to join in that elite company is phenomenal itself because there were many times during the series, Alex, where the Knicks' offense got stagnant, and we can talk about Julius Randle's woes because of times where he sure passed the ball up. He was passive in terms of winding, basically letting the shot clock go down and taking away a tough contested three or fadeaway jumper. Brunson's coolness caused a cucumber in game six when the Knicks found themselves nine points down. They were 85-76 when Jimmy Butler had that and one with about six minutes left. He hit that. Very important three. I'm pretty sure he hit that triple as well. And he actually hit those two shots after Gabe Vincent clocked him in the face for the flagrant <laughs> flagrant type one, foul one. And he, his composure, even though he had that costly turnover in the last 22 seconds, I'm pretty sure it was when Max Struess did an excellent job to rotate over and force Brunson to make a very difficult pass inside the paint, which you look back at now, he sure passed it back out to Josh Hart got it back again, looked for a hard screen and possibly drive to rim and try and draw contact and get a couple of free throws. But when they needed him, 
most, especially after game one, Alex, where he was super critical of himself. He missed all seven of his three-point attempts, even though he had a 25-point night. He said he had to be better, and he backed it up in game two. Pretty sure he scored 30, if I'm not mistaken, as well, in that game two victory. And even though the Knicks, their three-point woes were very catastrophic during the series, they shot under 30%, and Miami's were basically on par as well. For what he did alone, this series was, yes, just absolutely incredible. And again, they haven't had too much success in terms of in recent years of marquee signings, Alex, but this is one that absolutely tops the list. Yeah, in the offseason, we might get into our breakdowns of what each team might look to do. And for the Knicks, um, they've got some problems, but Jalen Brunson certainly not one of them. Tom, I'm going to give you three more games and you pick your favorite out of here. We've got the Jason Tatum game six. I've got listed on my performance of the week, even though he did start one for 15. Uh, the Lonu Walker game, all 15 points coming in the fourth quarter to come from behind and take a Lakers victory by three over the defending champions. Or game six, which was that Suns elimination game, KCP had 17 of his 21 in the first quarter as they got an 18-point first quarter lead, I think it was. But Cameron Payne had 31 for the Suns on 16 shots. They wasted a Cameron Payne game, seven of nine from the three-point line. Pick one of those, Tom, and then we'll move on to Alex's secret segment. At, uh, at risk of getting a restraining order, I'll hold off on the Tatum talk for a minute. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go with the Lottie Walker game. It's just This is what's just so great about playoff basketball. Every year there seems to be just one, one, at least one player who just sort of gets buried in the rotation, comes in and is just shooting flames. And it was got to the point where Lonnie Walker was taking shots and I was just sort of like, that's a bad shot, but go for it. You have to take that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, LeBron James and Davis, it was, just, it was just like, get him the ball. And it's the best thing about basketball is it's a sport where you can just get the ball to the, whoever's hot. Whereas you see other sports, some players might be hot, but they don't touch the ball for three, four minutes. Whereas basketball, you feed them. And he was just hitting ridiculous shots and hunting Steph Curry, making them making the Warriors pay for it. And he won them that game. Had, had he not had that sort of fire explosion, they might have not won that. Warriors might have actually ended up turning that series and winning that at home. So who knows? But great performance. Wasn't it? All right, we'll take a really quick break and we'll come back with Alex's secret segment. All right, welcome back to the NBA Recap Show. It's time for Alex's secret segment this week, hosted by Tom. Tom, take it away. Thank God I don't have to do this. Yes, so I've uh, taken over for the week. And so something I quite like in sports for some reason is uh, players and their numbers. And I, uh, for some reason, have a, have a, uh, find it quite easy to remember random players and their numbers. So I thought I'd give you guys a bit of a quiz. Oh, uh, and I will tell you a, a team and I'll, play, I'll tell you a number and you've got to try and guess the player. And I've done this in uh, five rounds. So uh, first first round's uh, about the teams you guys support. Do you mean uh, like so... jersey number, just to clarify? Yeah, yeah, jersey number. Oh, this jersey is going to this is gonna hurt. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, round, round one for uh, Yuri, I've got obviously Bucks, number 23. Wes Matthews. Yeah, correct. I'm going uh, 0 for five, Tom. I'm going 0 for five. <laughs> uh, Alex Raptors, number 33. Pascal Siakam. Sorry, you cut out there. Pascal Siakam. No, no, that's uh, 43, I think. He's got uh, Gary Trent Jr. Come on, I'm going to tell you now, I'm going 0 for 5. I know none of these jersey numbers. There's been too much. All right, I've I've got some some bench players for your team for the second round. So, uh, Yuri Bucks, number 31. Oh, hopefully this has come back to my head shortly. This can't. Oh, no. 
Oh, how many more seconds do I have left to answer this? <laughs> oh, it was no. uh, it was uh, it was the buyout man Dragic. No, that's a deep yeah. cut. Yeah, deep cut. All right, Alex on the Raptors number twenty five. Malachi Flynn. No, Chris Boucher. Oh, I'm, oh. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is brutal. I'm a fraud, guys. <laughs> All right, uh, for this round, I just went online and hit randomizer on one of those NBA websites. Um, so, Yuri, I've got you uh, the Knicks number 13. No one, I don't think. No, I'll give you a hint. He got buried in the uh, back of the bench despite being a marquee free agent signing a few years ago. Played for the Magic and Celtics are his last two teams. Evan Fournier. Yeah. Uh, Alex, I've given you the Clippers, number 40. Number 40? Number 40. Oh, that's brutal. Used to play for the the Lakers. Avicii Zubak. Yeah. I was going to guess that too because it's the only guy I can think of. (laughs) Avicii Zubak. So, jump the gun there for you. Um, Round four, I've gone, uh, I've called this one the third wheel round. So, uh, I found some of the big threes uh, in the history of the game and uh, I've given you the third player in those big threes. So for Yuri, I've given you the Spurs number twenty. Manager Nobly. Yeah. Uh, Alex, I'll give you the Cavs number zero. Look, I know this is an audio podcast, but I'm looking very nervous. I want to say um, he's got no love, Mister Kevin Love. Yeah, that is. Oh, correct. thank God! Oh, thank God! That's only two, man. That's, that's two. <laughs> I used to love Kevin Love on the Timberwolves, so I'm glad I remember that. <laughs> um, all right, and the last round, Magic round. So Magic Johnson famously wore the number 32. So there's been a few uh, different players who have had their number 32 retired. Uh, so these are all legends. Uh, so Yuri, I've given you the Miami Heat number 32. Oh, come on, I should know this. If he misses, I can I guess? Oh, number 32. I'm just thinking. I know Alonzo wore number 33. Uh, oh, no, you can't give me a hint, right? No, so Alex thinks he knows it. Does, do you, I don't think it? I know it. I just want to guess. Is, no. this, is the 32 retired by the heat for this person or just in general? No, for this person. Oh, well, then I've got no idea. I was going to say Shaquille O'Neal, but I don't yeah, think that's right. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, I'm 50%. Right, last one. Come on. This is my chance to do better than half. All right. Boston, number 32. Oh. Boston. <laughs> you know what? I was just looking at this today because I'm working on an article about the old original Celtics team from New York before the NBA existed. And I was looking at retired numbers. 32 for Boston. <laughs> Whose dog was that, Barkins? <laughs> She's trying to give you the answer. It was it was Bird, Parrish, and Yuri, you can steal it from me. My dad's gonna Kevin McHale? Me. Yeah, correct. That is an end of top secret segment. Oh, man. That was one of those That that was brutal. We're all frauds, gentlemen. We should hand (laughs) this podcast over. If you're listening and you want an NBA podcast with uh, international listeners, (laughs) throw your hand up. (laughs) She can have it. Oh, all right. Well, that's a really good point to jump into our round three previews. I say round three, but they're the conference finals. And lads, we've got 15 to 20 minutes to talk about two series. 
I think we want to spend the most time on the Celtics versus Heat because Tom, a, <laughs> a diehard Celtic supporter. We might start there and lads, jump over the top. Uh, we're going to have a conversation about where we see this heading. I'll set the table uh, and we'll have a, a discussion for five or seven minutes and come up with who we think might come out the other end. So this is a Celtics Heat matchup is the, re- excuse me, the rematch of the 2020 bubble conference finals. In that conference finals in 2020, Miami upset the Celtics in six games, but Bam Adebayo was that top scorer. He had uh, 22 points and 11 rebounds per game. You might think Jimmy Butler's number two. Jimmy Butler was the fourth highest scoring Heat member. We had Goran Dragic and Tyler Hero, both at around 20 points a game, and then Jimmy had a bit of an off-series. Jason Tatum scored 26.5 points in 2020, and Jalen Brown, uh, 23 points, but he was a 50% shooter um, that six-game series. Uh, Tom, starting with you, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you think this series—excuse me—this series shakes out, and what might be a key matchup or moment. Well, when the uh, Heat dropped that first playing game, I was, I was a bit relieved that the Celtics wouldn't have to play playoff Jimmy, and yet here we are a month later, and we've still got this guy. Like it's yeah. ridiculous. He hunts you down. Um, he does, <laughs> and I mean, he's, he's averaged twenty-two and a half points per game um, versus Celtics in the playoffs since uh, that bubble, that bubble season from then till now. Um, he, the the Heat were two and two against Boston this year, and Butler didn't play in two of those games. Um, and look. Jimmy is a clutch player. The Celtics have shown this playoffs they are not good in the clutch. If these games are close, I fully expect the Heat to win these because the Celtics will go down their end and they will turn over the ball or do something stupid or they won't call a timeout or they will call a timeout and it will backfire and Jimmy will just, you know, bury them like he has all like all uh, all your all playoffs long for all the other players. Um, Carl Lowry will just do his antics. Um you know, well-known Twitter Knicks fan Rob Perez was going through all the emotions dealing with Kyle Lowry's absolute rubbish antics, and I expect to be doing the same. Um, and these Heat guys just always seem to step up against the Celtics. Like Strauss, Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin um, tend to go off. They always tend to hit timely threes. Just when just when it looks like the Celtics are pulling away, they always come back and hit a three. Um, and look, there's still no update on Hero, but you know, I, I reckon he'll probably end up coming back just somehow for it. They'll probably try and rush him through it. Um, but yeah, look, that's my thoughts on the Heat. Before I touch on the Celtics, if you guys have any thoughts on them. I think it's going to be... Sorry, Alex. You... No, no, go ahead, Yuri. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I think going into the series as well, it's almost how many minutes will Kevin Love play too? Because that's going to be the other interesting part of this series because he only averaged close to about 20 minutes in the Knicks series and roughly it was about the same too in the first round against Milwaukee and how they utilize him. I think that's going to be a real intriguing subplot to how the series runs, runs its course. But also with Carl Lowry too, he was phenomenal in game four. Him and Caleb Martin had five of the seven offensive rebounds combined against the Knicks. And I think there was a sequence there. I think it was about five or six minutes left in the fourth quarter of game four, where Miami had about four offensive possessions in a row and completely tormented the Knicks on the boards, where after the first two games where New York absolutely hammered Miami from pillar to post on the glass, we thought, well, this is going to be in the Knicks' favour. But Miami's rebounding has been very good thus far. And, of course, with Bam Adebayo being absolutely front and centre in game six too with his some of his crucial offensive plays as well. He had that very important dunk, wasn't it, in the last... 50, 55 seconds of that game to put Miami up 92-86. I think it'll be extremely 
I'll be extremely curious to see how Coach Eric Spolstra does play him in the offensive sets too, with down low with either Al Horford or Robert Williams, because we've seen, of course, with game sixes, game six and seven with the Boston Celtics inserting Rob Williams back into into the starting lineup. Do they just allow Rob Williams, the Celtics, for him to roam free as he did when he was matched up on PJ Tucker? I think though this is going to be a different story because Kevin Love is a exceptional three-point shooter. You have Caleb Martin who can knock down his threes at any given time. So I don't think in a way they're going to allow for Rob Williams to just patrol the paint by himself and not pay any attention to either Love or Martin on those corner threes. That's going to be something that's going to be really highly interesting to see how it plays out. And Gabe Vincent's production too in the first couple of playoff series against Milwaukee and New York, he is, again, inherently underrated. And he had a very good regular season too where he fielded for Carl Lowry when Lowry missed all those games, basically the knee injury. Those couple of games we touched upon, it was actually a back-to-back against Milwaukee in mid-January. We had 28 and 27 points respectively and completely torched us up from deep. So they've got to pay attention and quite a considerable amount of respect to Vincent's shooting from deep as well. Boston, I don't think they can allow Miami to snipers. They've done through the first two, well, especially the first series against Milwaukee, maybe not in the second series against the Knicks because it's a far different cry from the regular season where I think Miami shot only about 33% from downtown during the regular season and this playoffs, they've been exceptional from deep, especially, of course, the first round and paying attention to the likes of Max Struess and once they get Tyler Hero back, who knows, from that broken hand, Kevin Love, Carl Larry's a very good three-point shooter, Gabe Vincent likewise. So it's going to be far different to how Boston navigates through in terms of their defensive schemes because it was something they completely got on top of especially in game six and seven against Philly and in that first round against Atlanta once they figured things out. So it's going to be highly interesting to see how that all plays out because we saw last postseason as well where it was absolutely fighting tooth for now. Both teams were exceptional on the defensive end. And again, who knows come this series. But I think what we should expect is an absolute corker yet again. Yeah, Yuri, I've got almost nothing to add because you've touched on everything I wanted to say. Other than game one, I'll be looking at Bam Adebayo to see um, the matchup that Spo comes up with, whether they're hunting a switch on him or not. He was obviously really big with 22 points, 11 rebounds back in the bubble. Um, I think he's a man that might be able to do some damage depending on game plan because we know the Celtics are going to come out firing and Jimmy's got the hot hand as well. Um, this is an interesting question just for, for maybe 10 seconds on this. Do the Celtics have the highest high of any of these remaining teams? And does Miami have the lowest low of any of these remaining teams? Because I think this is maybe the best versus the worst team left in the playoffs. Just 10 seconds on that, Tom, and then Yuri. Potentially. it's If the Celtics are hitting their threes, yeah. yeah. If they're not, then Celtics can be rock bottom. And so, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, they have the highest of highs. The Heat are a different one because we saw them in the regular season, but they're just so different now that you have to throw that out. You have to base them off the last two weeks. And after yeah. the last two weeks, they're a good team. Yeah, Yuri, how do you feel? 10 seconds. Yeah, probably the same as well, but I feel as though if Miami don't hit their threes, they can find other ways to stymie the Celtics down. They can kind of grind it out, think, can't they? Yes, yeah. that's the big thing where, of course, their threes weren't falling in the next series when they shot about 30%, but New York only shot, what, 29% from downtown for the entire series. And, of course, we saw in game six, right, where both Miami and New York shot, what, 39% overall from the field. But, yet again, Miami found those important ways and important and crucial moments to find to come up with those very important 
again, moments, yet alone too. And we saw, of course, in game four with Carl Lowry coming up big too with those couple of steals and game six as well, that very important defensive play where Max Struess came from the weak side to block off Jalen Brunson's basically layup attempt, if you, layup attempt if you want to classify it that way. So they find all these different schemes when their offense isn't flowing, Alex, and I think that's the big part on where, of course, Coach Eric Spolstra gets his credit. Tom, it's time. It's that time of the podcast. You can talk about your Celtics. Go ahead. Tell us you told us so. All right. Well, no, I'm not going early yet. This this Heat team is going to give me nightmares. Uh, and look, I think this coaching matchup completely favors the Heat. I mean, Spolster is the best coach remaining by you know, the the stretch of a mile, basically. And Missoula, look, he showed a lot of vulnerability in that Sixers series, but. You know, he made the adjustments in games six and seven. You've got to give him the credit. He did make those adjustments. But this Miami Heat team knows how to be coached against this Celtics team. In that 2020 bubble series, they implemented the zone defense. And the Celtics have never actually played against zone well since. Sixers threw it at them and they, they you know, they pushed them at times. Um, and look, uh, who's going to guard Tatum and Brown will be interesting. Last year, PJ Tucker sort of took the Tatum role uh, at bits. But it'll be interesting to see that sort of thing. They've got the guard depth now. Um, and look, last year's playoff series, they pushed them. But the underrated thing about that is the Celtics only had their full team for the last three games. Horford and Smart missed game one, White missed game two, Rob Williams missed game three, Smart missed game four. And they were all beat up through different injuries. Whereas this year, they've come through a little bit cleaner. While they still had the seven games and they had six games against Atlanta, injury-wise, they're in a much better shape than what they were last year. Um, and look, will they go to that double big lineup, as Yuri touched on before, will be interesting because if they play White, Smart, Brown, Tatum, and Horford, Butler doesn't really have that mismatch to hunt on. Um, whereas if they have Rob Williams and Horford, they can sort of jump in there. Um, and look, which version of Tatum we get? Do we get you know the first three quarters in game six against Philly? will be interesting. But I actually think the most important thing in this series is which version of Smart we get. Because today in game seven, he had seven points, four rebounds, four assists. That's a nothing sort of game. But he only took seven shots. Um, and he only turned it over twice. And that's the Marcus Smart the Celtics need to win. That's game of the season series. for him. <laughs> but pretty much. I mean, look, credit for Virginia, he won game six. Like, Tatum threw out all the headlines, but he won game six. But today, that's the Smart you need. Yuri, you've got 15 seconds on this series. Yeah, just I think you have another intriguing point of this series too, Alex. I think it's going to be Boston love to s- switch in terms of the smaller mismatches when they're, in the o- when they're on the offensive end. So... That's going to be highly intriguing to see how they hunt out Miami because, again, the Heat love to stay with the same opponent. They don't want to switch too often if they need to. Yes, they will at times because they've got such lengthy defenders, but you think at the best of times they'll try and not implement a switch and try and stay on their man. I think that's going to be something Boston will look to headhunt as they've done during the regular season too. Tom, you're picking the Celtics? Yes, but you're, oh, very tentatively. <laughs> Yuri, you're picking the Seas? Celtics in seven. I'm picking right. Boston as well. I think it's going to be rough. I think I think it'll start rough, but I think if they clear up, I'm not sure the Heat have got the gas they need. All right, moving on to another conference finals uh, rematch from the 2020 bubble series. It's the Los Angeles Lakers versus the Denver Nuggets. Again, I'll set the table for you guys. The Lakers are 9-6 and six in their last 15 games against the Nuggets, which goes back to that 2020 playoffs. 
Murray has averaged 22 points a game the last six games. He obviously uh, played in 2020, but tore that ACL in 2021. Um, Jokic is averaging 24, 13 rebounds, nine assists in roughly the last nine games uh, since September 2020. And the Lakers won in five. They handed it to them pretty, well, I wouldn't say pretty easily, but they haven't got the same team at all. The only two uh, remaining, excuse me, the only two remaining roster players for the Lakers are Anthony Davis and LeBron James. It's a completely different roster for the Lakers. Um, KCP, Contavious Caldwell Pop was actually the third highest scorer for the Lakers in 2020, and now he's on Denver. Uh, Yuri, we'll start with you. What's your key factor for the series, and how do you see it shaking out? Yeah, I think this is going to be really fascinating, Alex. And we saw it in game six when the Lakers inserted Dennis Schroeder into the starting lineup, shifted LeBron to the power forward position. Do they stick with that? Because Jared Vanderbilt only played four minutes. And we saw, of course, during that Golden State series where he had the matchup on Curry and did an exceptional job guarding him. And the other one, too, being Austin Reeves, they switched, I think it was about game four, when they put Reeves onto Curry and the Lakers had considerable success with Reeves on him. I think looking at it too with Denver and how they implement what they do so effectively with the Murray Jokic pick and roll too, whether they look to implement not sort of the same offensive in terms of motion offense because they're not a motion offensive offense team, Denver in the way, even though Jokic sets up so much of those backdoor passes to either KCP or Aaron Gordon for those lob dunks or to Michael Porter Jr. who we saw during the Sun series, but how do they mitigate that Murray-Jokic pick and roll? Because it can go vice versa both ways, where Murray, where Jokic, I say, will set a screen, Murray will either feed a pocket pass to him or feed it back to him, where Jokic either sets that screen, rolls back to, say, about 15 to 18 feet, takes that jumper, and that will stretch Davis out outside the paint because that's what Golden State did effectively in games two, Game five, when they took Davis out of the paint to mitigate his shot blocking because he had, what, 2.2 blocks against Golden State. He had 26 blocks in the series alone against Memphis. They've got to figure out some way of taking Davis's strengths, of course, being on the shot blocking end, uh, in terms of being on shot blocking, should I say, on the defensive end, and use it to their advantage. And I think that's where they can get them to. I think the other part, too, is though. This is probably going to be the test for Jokic as well because he absolutely had his way with Rudy Gobert. He had his way with DeAndre Ayton. They tried Jock Landau on him, Phoenix, and he, yes, tried his physical shoving and bully ball on Jokic, and yes, that didn't work. But Davis will be a far different, more opponent though, Alex. He's been in that OMBA defensive player. How many times? Probably, was it three times if I'm not mistaken? And he's... Defensive ploy and presence is going to be really important for the Lakers to see how they sort of fare out against the Nuggets too. I think the other part as well where maybe Denver didn't get a lot of this in terms of of transition, but they did score a lot of fast-break points against the Suns as well as Michael Porter's pull-up threes as well. I think we saw one of them in Game 5, which put put Denver up 29-18, which Jokic was the main facilitator for that. So I'll be interested to see if they do do that when they get out on the fast break and in transition. And the other one being the Aaron Gordon lob Fred as well, because mm. I think once in game five where Durant went to help Jokic out and Aiton was completely on his own and Durant had no choice, but Jokic being the absolutely mastermind that he is as the facilitator saw that there was enough of a room to lob the ball up to Gordon and watch him just emphatically dunk at home. So 
how the Lakers sort of coverage for that, I think that's going to be interesting in itself. But it's so fascinating to see how this series sort of plays out too. Of course, we know the Lakers' defensive transition woes is something that they Which is really strange as well. On. Yeah, like I think they have the best defensive rating in the playoffs, but they do struggle in that transition uh, defense. Uh, do you have a pick for this series, Yuri? Because this is a really confusing one for me. I'm not sure I do, but go ahead. What's your pick? I have the Nuggets in six. I just nuggets think the overall, with the eight-man rotation Malone's gone with, with Jeff Green, who looks like he's 25, not 37 <laughs> this year. Christian Braun, the rookie out of Kansas, he's given an absolute spark. He's been great. And, and Bruce Brown, who Mark Malone... Right from basically November when he had that triple-double, I was just putting it down in my notes for another piece I'm going to put out a bit later, I think tomorrow in a couple of days' time as well. He had that triple-double against OKC. It was about 17 points, 10, 13 rebounds and 10 assists, if I'm not mistaken. They won in, I think it was a November 23 game, yes, against OKC. And he lauded Bruce Brown because they saw something in Calvin Booth, the Nuggets GM, which... He signed Brown to a two-year, $13.2 million deal to come to Denver. They found a permanent role for him as basically being that facilitator in a way too because he was that roll-up forward in Brooklyn. He was a point guard again in Detroit. But there was no real set-in-stone concrete position for Bruce Brown. But now that he's found that in Denver, I think it's been a real luxury that the Nuggets have had, especially when Murray goes to the bench, they can play Brown at the point. And the other part as well, Alex, just want to touch on before we do move on, is they've been playing Aaron Gordon at the five in the non-Jokic minutes, and that had success in game one. And who knows whether it's going to have success against the Lakers, and that only time will tell, hey? That was my key for the series. Very briefly, I have picked the Lakers and I don't know why. I've been saying since the trade deadline, I don't think the Lakers are a good team. I think they're a team full of really strong individual players, and they've proved me wrong repeatedly. Uh, I think Denver are probably the better team. They've got chemistry. They've got cohesion, a two-time recent MVP. But for some reason, I think maybe the Lakers have just got too much firepower. Maybe I just want to see a Lakers-Celtics final again. Maybe that's the old the, the old boy in me he wants to see them fight for number 18. Um, Tom, talk us through the series. Who you got and take us home down the podcast? Yeah, so look, from a Denver sort of side of things, it'll be interesting to see if they can contain LeBron James, how well LeBron is playing. We'll see. Um, and I think the biggest key for Denver is can they match the free throw shooting that the Lakers showed or just avoid fouling completely and keep them off the line. It was a massive key in that Lakers-Warriors series that really propelled them forward. Um, and then, look, the matchup we're all looking forward to is Jokic-Davis. Mm. I mean, yeah, sure, Jokic might not be defending Davis that well or at all, but on the offensive end, with Davis's, with Jokic's capabilities and Davis's defensive capabilities, that's just going to be a great matchup um, to see. Uh, and I actually think, I think Jamal Murray might actually be the expert factor for the Nuggets. I think he's going to have to bring it every night. And it's not going to be like one night he has 40, one night he has 15. He's going to need to be having 25 to 30 every single night for this team to just keep rolling. Um, and with Jokic, they're always going to be getting good looks from three. So if they can drain them, they're going to be there. Um, so just as long as, you know, Jeff, even Jeff Green can hit a three every once in a while. Um, so let's see what that happens. And then on a Lakers side of things, I, I don't know if LeBron and Davis can keep doing this. I said this two rounds ago and they, they, they keep doing it. So. Exactly. That's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, how bad is LeBron's foot? Is he just an absolute, you know, freak? Um, and, you know, my question is, is Davis capable of scoring 30-plus every night but also going on the other end and playing elite defense on Jokic? Because No. Yeah, I don't think he is either. In that Warriors game, he started off strong offensively 
And the back half of games, you could see his scoring slowed down, but defensively he was still there. I don't think he's going to be able to slack on the offensive end as much as he did in that Warriors series. Um, and again, foul shooting him. Will they continue to get these calls? Let's see. I think they will. LeBron James teams always get foul line calls. Um, and, you know, I think one of the most important things is who's going to be their backup big. Because we saw Vanderbilt sort of fill in some of those minutes, but not really. He only played, I think, about two minutes in game six against the Warriors. And so when Davis needs to go to the bench to rest, do they go small with LeBron at the five? I mean, Mo Bamba hasn't played at all. I don't think he's going there. And if you're playing Tristan Thompson, you're not a true championship contender. So, I don't know. At the moment, I've got Nuggets in six. But knowing how things are going with this Lakers game, they're going to come out in game one. They're going to punch Denver right in the face. And I'm just going to look like an idiot. So... Yeah, I fully expect some weird coaching uh, changes too. Maybe AD playing in the non-Jokic minutes and trying to abuse when they've got Aaron Gordon in five. Yuri, you've got 30 seconds because it's right at the end of the podcast. Yes, the free throw discrepancy as well we touched upon too. That series as well, just calculating yesterday in preparation for today's episode, the Lakers had doubled the amount of free throws than Golden State, 160 to 80. I think it tells you the whole story. Yeah. Look, this is my least favorite time of the week where I have to be the bad guy and say goodbye and the three-man weave drill we've been running so successfully for the last hour. Uh, if you've stuck with us th- this far, thanks. But also follow us on Instagram at Mojo Sports Network. Uh, we've got an article on the NBA Live up again tomorrow, another one of our three-on-three, four-on-three things where the panel gives their opinion. So if you've got the NBA Live app, keep an eye out and links to all of our stuff will be in the show notes. Tom or Yuri, do you have articles coming out this week? Yuri, I know you do yes. occasionally. Yes, just a couple of those conference finals previews. Currently got stuck into them this afternoon as well. Currently doing the Nuggets Lakers one. So looking to put that one up on the Basketball Live app too. Get in send, touch with Nick about that. Send me a and, link to your Substack, and we'll put it in the show notes yes. for today. And also... Hopefully another one on Zero Hanger 2 looking at Port Adelaide in the last month and their resurgence because, again, it's been, yeah, after round four, right against Sydney, that win and Ken Hinckley and all the talk about him and to see the emotion with his fist pumping after the game against Sydney. So they've had a great turnaround thus far, Port Adelaide. And who knows, again, they're just, yeah, one of those teams that can really catch opponents out with their style of play. And Tom, I know you've got an article coming out this week where it's just Jason Tatum hitting threes repeatedly and you smiling and just selfies of you. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's called the Tatum Diaries. It's about 6,000 words. It's, you know, just, it's just the words, Jason Tatum, Jason Tatum, Jason Tatum, Jason Tatum. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I, I am worried I will get a restraining order now, but we'll see. <laughs> We've still got two more rounds. I might flip. But no, I've got, I've got a weekly uh, article going up on the Footy Live app. Um, and I'm also hoping to get some articles up on the NBA live app so you can read me there, maybe some raw stuff, but got one on about Mike Budenhoser coming out this week. Oh, I hope lovely. So. I'll stick around for that one. Thanks for joining me, guys. As always, please follow the show. If you uh, message us on Instagram, we respond to all of our stuff. Lots of international listeners. So if you're listening from Indonesia, Germany, Canada, wherever you are, thank you very much. Reach out. We'll see you next week. We'll be around at some point to talk about what I'm sure will be yet another crazy week in the NBA. Thanks a lot, Yuri Tom. Cheers, Alex. Cheers, Alex.